How's that? Ripping performance, old boy. Come over to the podcast and meet the others. Podcast? It's like a cross between the wireless and a gramophone, old fellow. Paul, may I present Hugh? How do you do, Hugh? (laughs) No one's ever made that joke before. (laughs) Hugh who? (laughs) Can we just move on past the Hugh jokes? I'm sorry, Paul, but he'd like to remain incognito, and I think we should respect that after what he's done today. Of course, yes. First rate, sir. This is Giles, the Doctor Science of our podcast. Ah, your enthusiasm for Doctor Who is worthy of the master. What? Well, uh, the other Hugh. Who? Now he's doing it. A commissioner of the Daleks Master Plan, Sir Hugh Weldon. Yes, of course. Are you able to stay for the podcast, Hugh? Yes, you must. I insist now. Thank you. Good. We need someone to get stuck in a secret passage for the better part of an episode. Oh. And it's always useful to have someone new to blame, you know, if anything goes wrong. I see. Only thing is, I haven't got a fancy podcast microphone. I was just thinking how charming yours was. That's true, Hugh. We'd better get started before I change my mind. Welcome to a special compilation edition of Something Who, featuring the best bits from the episodes we released in 2020. We're looking at Doctor Who's two great sporting encounters, starting with the Fifth Doctor's cricketing exploits in Black Orchid, followed by the Eleventh Doctor's footballing feats in The Lodger. And who better to help us with that than Hugh Turberville? Hello, Hugh. Hi, good evening. Nice to be on here. Well, it's great to have you on. And welcome to what we're calling, for one episode only, Something Hugh. <laughs> so many of you will know Hugh as a sports journalist and as the managing editor of the Cricketer magazine, but the three regular contributors here also know him as an occasional visitor to Gallifrey Bass's Missing Episodes mega thread. What really sealed the deal, I suppose, was Peter Davison, who I was already a fan of in all great and small. Yeah. And then being the cricket doctor, I suppose, um, really did it. That that merged my two, you know, two of my great loves, cricket and uh, Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess I, there was something similar with, with me in that. It was fantastic to, to, to think the two things could be combined. Mm. Although, maybe not always fully coherently. No, so what do we see? In Castrovalvo, we see that he's got his own pavilion, I suppose, in, in the TARDIS. Yeah. Which was quite sweet. And although, clearly, it was... Um, CGI wasn't it? Or color separation overlay, as it's called in, in those days. And then for the Doomsday, he threw the ball, at, cricket ball, at the side of the spaceship to sort of propel himself off, which I think um, anybody with a scientific leaning is dismissed as errant nonsense. I'm going to play the fifth on that one because I know if I say anything on that, I will be caught caught out on the physics. Caught out. Oh God, there I go again. <laughs> I think that was that was the consensus. So I'd need to go back and watch it and uh, figure out exactly what was what's wrong with it. I'm sure it is wrong, but nevertheless, yeah, that was in it as well. And then, of course, yeah. Orchid was the big one. Doctor Who had been in uh, a cricket head. Sorry, had been in, in Doctor Who a few times before, hadn't it? Well, Tom Baker threw a rock, boulder rock, yes, in uh, hand of, um, and he had a cricket ball in his pocket for arc in space to activate the defence mechanisms of Nerva Beacon. 
So I think the fourth Doctor was a cricket fan. Um, but the first Doctor didn't know anything about it when the TARDIS landed on the outfield of Lords doing an Ashes test in Dalek Masterplan. Dalek's Masterplan, I should say. I have been mm. discussing that very recently for a rival podcast. Stay tuned. He said he didn't know anything about the game, I believe. I have read a blog about all the times that it cropped up in Doctor Who over the years. To my knowledge, it never cropped up in Trout and Pertwee. But <laughs> no. I've always wondered with that scene in the Dalek's Masterplan, whether that inspired mm. whether Douglas Adams saw that and had that stored away because of uh, the bit in um like the universe and everything yeah it's all very tongue-in-cheek isn't it and taking the mickey out of test match special the, the famous bbc radio program and you know commentators wittering on about what's going on on the outfield or you know or the big red bus has gone past or uh, that is that kind of irreverent humor you know and the, the, the these commentators wouldn't bat an eyelid that the that, that time landed on the outfield and uh, it's merely a, a, an annoyance that the test match between England and Australia has been delayed uh, and, and once it disappears they get straight back on with the action again. England still require or now require 73 and 38 minutes I think isn't it the exact script or something like that. Yeah so it's that same kind of humor whereas yeah very much um, I've got the book actually behind me Doctor and the Cricket Men I haven't read it yet but um, Douglas Adams it's something about a, a wicket gate, isn't it, or something with the three stumps and the bales, and yeah. the cricket men are after this wicket gate or something, and uh, it's that same kind of irreverent humour, isn't it? Douglas Adams. One more thing about him, I just recalled, is that Douglas, um, forty-two, of course, great significance, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. But he got that number because England had bowled India out for forty-two. Forty-two. <laughs> <42? laughs> That sounds convincing. Um, I'll just quickly Google when that was. Second Test, 1974. Oh, right. India were bowled out for 42 at Lord by England. So, obviously, Douglas Adams found that highly hilarious and because and, it's obviously an incredibly low score for cricket. Hmm. Yeah, he, he adopted that number for the, the greatest question of all, of course, you know. Hmm. Life, universe, and everything. And then what's the question? Six times seven. It, I tell you what the question should have been. What did England bowl India out for to nineteen seventy four? That might that might have been, been better. But no, um, it would it would have made more sense. I think. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, How many roads must a man walk down? <laughs> I haven't gone back to check, but the bit he he recycled quite certain aspects of that and Shard for life, the universe, and everything. And isn't there a scene that's basically the same where the sofa mm. appears on the cricket pitch and we hear the commentators? Yes, exactly. The same with, gag, with, with the commentary. It must have had a great impression on him. With, at an, yes. At a young age. Hmm. I just remembered that David Tennant used a cricket ball to stop a piano landing on a pram in um, Human Nature. Oh, yes. So there was a bit more cricket coming up and... Uh, funnily enough, also um, in Silver Nemesis, the Cybermen had uh, Duncan Burnley cricket gloves, painted silver. <laughs> double knuckle, double knuckle gloves. They were called, yeah. Until the Gallifrey thing happened, mm. most of the references seemed to be fairly low key and the sort of thing you could appreciate, but it didn't really make a big difference mm. to the plot if you didn't. Yes, and then as you say, the Gallifrey thing happened. So yeah, what 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 do we think of it? It's, what are our... Simon Gallifrey? What do you think? I I need a bit of help with Gallifrey because I've I've lost track of whether when it's been destroyed <laughs> and <laughs> I think well, time 
time wars and everything. So that that completely, I, 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 I keep saying I thoroughly enjoyed it, but that that threw me. All the information is there. <laughs> no, that completely threw me. So I need some help here, guys. Have please. you? Is this because you've wiped hell hell bent out of your memory? Which <laughs> I wouldn't blame you for. But you must remember the results of the fiftieth uh, special. Yeah. And if you didn't, you should have listened to yeah. our <laughs> podcast on the subject. Well, I mean, this, this, I mean, the story so far, Simon, is very simple. But if Gallifrey <laughs> uh, has been wiped from existence um, in uh, in series one, and then it comes back in series three, but then it gets blown up again by, <laughs> and then it, it uh, by the master, and then it disappears for a bit, and then <laughs> um, it turns out that. Uh, it wasn't in, really blown up in before series indeed. one. No, it was. It, 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 they it, it was an illusion. It was hiding. hiding. I'm a nearby. Um, uh, and and they give the Doctor a whole new re- regeneration cycle, whilst disappearing off into a into a bubble universe mm. behind a wall of diamonds, which Capaldi then <laughs> punches out. You know, one I lo- day at I, a time for three billion years. I admire the clarity and brevity with which you're explaining this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then he tumbles through into Gallifrey, and stuff happens. <laughs> I just can't quite remember what, what did happen in Hellbent in terms of basically it was here, then it wasn't, then it was here, then it wasn't, then it was here, then it wasn't. Yeah, but I, lo- I, I like I like the fact that we clarified that it was still oh, in it, its it, pocket universe. And if you read the books, Hellbent. it was here, then it wasn't. Hmm. <laughs> yes, they did. I'm glad they still mentioned that. Yeah, because I, yeah. I, I, I was thoroughly confused by by the heaven sent hell bender thing about. I was thinking, hang on, so is it back back? As it, in this universe, in which case, why isn't it? Yeah, no, they. Why is it immediately Moffat, ground zero for? Yeah, Moffat left it. Um, I thought he left it in a very sensible place for future mm. showrunners because it yeah. was it existed, which so he had. Mm. Which he thought was obviously thought was important. So it's a toy yeah. you can play with if you want to, but it's, <laughs> but it's not in the sandpit. It's yeah. hiding in another dimension. Note, mm, not yeah. n- not another universe, another dimension. Mm-hmm. Because back then we didn't have all these other universes that we have now. Right. Yeah. So you know there was no need for anybody to blow it up again because no. you, it just it didn't have to be there. The time lords don't interfere with things. They're mm. hiding mm. somewhere else. So you can just ignore it. So that's why I'm going to nail my cast to the mast now. I hope there's going to be. a a, a twist here, and it's not gone again. Not just because <laughs> I think there should be Gallifrey and Time Lords, because although although they've mostly been crap over the years, <laughs> I still think I want them to still be there for the because there's potential. Yeah. I want, and I think it's I'm not going to say a lazy plot device, but there, there does seem mm. to be this tendency for people to want to get rid of it for some reason because they think yeah. it'll help the character of the Doctor because they thought the Time Lords were rubbish. Well, don't show them then. You don't have to get rid of them. You just don't go there. Mm. Yeah. And it, does it really make the Doctor more interesting when he's the last of the time? Well, anyway, they did it in the books. Mm. They yeah. got rid of it because they thought it was essential for the character of the Doctor that he'd be on his own. And then then they brought it back again. Yeah. It, then he brought it, uh, What now? What did happen? Did oh, they had to do it with Luke? Hilariously, when the new series came, <laughs> it, it was completely destroyed Gallifrey in the books in the, right. in the 2000s. Yeah. And then when the new series came back and it was revealed very early on that Gallifrey had been destroyed in the Time War, the books, which were still running at this point, had to then bring it back so that it could be destroyed in the Time oh, War. Oh, fantastic. Which is, yeah, yeah. Which is good. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, 
Russell did it for whatever reason, and it was it was very important for four years mm. of the show. It was very important. It and to the do- it generally was important to the Doctor's character. Mm. Moffat, for what I don't know why, because he's an old softy, or because he wanted to do. Cause, I mean, he didn't bring back Gallifrey Tunnels because he wanted to use them every other week, mm. because he didn't. Mm. But for whatever reason, he brought them back again. So I mm. think if Chibnall's only done this because his version of, Doct- of Doctor Who is a version which doesn't have any need for time balls and Gallifrey, well, as I say, he could have just ignored it. He didn't need to blow mm. it up again. Yeah. So that's why I'm hoping there's more to this. Because so, I mean, I think be, and, and importantly, it does undermine some very lovely stuff in the 50th anniversary special. Yeah. And it's mm. such a win for the Doctor to find that he's not just saved Gallifrey and ended mm. the t- but also saved himself mm. from yeah but then doesn't money. doesn't um didn't hell bent heaven sent uh which which which, yeah, which order is it didn't is it hell bent is hell bent is the last episode it's the gallifrey yeah. episode yeah. isn't it right. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah i didn't that rather anymore. undermine didn't that yes, it, rather it, undermine it anyway by suddenly having did, okay vastlon's back and he's and, a bastard yeah. he's a bastard again yes mm. and um and everything's run by yeah i don't know what that was all about but Again, he left it. Yeah, mm. I can't remember how he left it, but they were still there. They were. Yes. They were. Yeah. They, Clara disappeared off with um, with her mate in the diner, mm. and the doctor disappeared off in his direction, and um, mm. the Gallifrey was just kind of there, but not there. Yes. Mm. I asked Jeremy if he'd think about a few of the people he'd met in you know earlier times, and, and think about what it was what it was like to meet them and what he discovered. So. Hello, Jeremy, and welcome back to Something Who. Hello, Richard. Glad to be here. I think the first person you identified was Patrick Troughton. Oh, absolutely. In a way, that was a bit of a no-brainer because, you know, Pat passed away in 1987. Yeah. Uh, He really didn't do much in the way of conventions Mm. before, well, he did any before 1983. But for myself, I had actually encountered Pat Troughton even earlier than 1983 because his son David, David Troughton, mm. went to the same school that I went to in Edgware. Ah. Uh, David was in the sixth form in the, in, in the drama group, and at the time I was a squitty little lowest form of life, the, the first form. <laughs> And uh, at the end of the year, they nearly all the school nearly always asked somebody of, of notable celebrity to come along and, and give an address to to the school. And in, in 1967, the, the one they chose was was Patrick Troughton, who who came along. Wow! And his I'm really scratching the memory now, but his talk was something like all of the world is a stage. And it was meant to be a bit of a sort of motivational kick up the backside to us all to think, you know, what are we going to do with ourselves when we leave school? Mm-hmm. Because his point was, and I've, linked, I've since found out it's, it is based on a quote by, I think, a French poet, that each person is actually three people. It's what they think they are. It's what other people think they are. And it's what, therefore, you truly are. Mm-hmm. And it was quite a. I wish I could remember more about exactly the text that he said, but it's it sort of you know, you, you put out this image, this impression of yourself that uh, that that you think is 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 the personality you'd like to project. How other people see it, that 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 can sometimes be the difficult bit to discern, depending how open or challenging people are back. And somewhere in between those two, the, as the feedback comes in and goes back back out again, uh, you might be able to discern the sort of person that's actually in there. 
Mm-hmm. And it was only when I started getting much, much, much more interested in, in, in the fan side of Doctor Who, you know, wanting to learn more about the, the programme and the actors who was in it. And I sort of remembered this thing about Pat Trout, that he was, that you, you very rarely ever got to, to meet the real Pat Troughton. Yeah. Uh, he was actually incredibly gifted at presenting to the world a, a, a series of, of images of himself and mm. he was otherwise very 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 private indeed well we didn't think for ages when, when when the appreciation society started that we would ever 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 get to see patrick troughton himself because uh-huh. he would always decline invitations for interviews he would always decline any invitations to conventions and he just you know resigned to the fact it was never ever going to happen and the thing that changed that, and certainly a huge whack across the faces in my concern, was when the National Film Theatre decided they were going to hold this event in October 83, which was before the Spirit of Light event, mm-hmm. uh, at the National Film Theatre called Doctor Who the Developing Art. And this had come about from, the idea of it came from the two writers who did that uh, famously um, oh, yes. cryptic tome, the Doctor Who the Unfortunate. <laughs> Next, yeah, uh, they were the, the, the one of them. Uh, I think it was John Tullock. Uh, yeah, he, he knew a uh, chap at the BFI, British Film Institute. Uh, his name was Richard Patterson, who was one of their sort of directors of programming, and with an idea to thinking, oh, we might sell a few more copies of the books if we did some sort of uh, event around it. Right, persuaded the the powers that be at the BFI. What a great idea it would be to devote a, a whole weekend to. To Doctor Who programming, which was an incredibly good idea because you were still that era when repeats and uh, mm. screenings of episodes were very, very rare. You know, you'd, you'd have the, the five faces of, of Doctor Who season, but there was yeah. still so much else that sort of hadn't happened by then. Sure. And the idea that the BFI, with its amazing ability to circumvent all the union problems and all the contractual problems that would prevent you from doing whole-scale broadcasting of these episodes said well yes we think it's a damn good idea as well it'll do our hopefully our membership no end of good so yes we'll sign up to it and i think it was about april or may that they sort of greenlit it and got a bit of a budget to to do it mm-hmm. and it was but it was sometime in the summer when they said oh well, you know we're hoping to get patrick trout <laughs> to be quite honest my, my my opinion was well you know good luck with that one you, you wouldn't be the first one to to attempt it but you know no attempts of love don't whiz on their fire or anything like that they're very enthusiastic to do something about it and his name was nearly always on that, that guest list that they wanted to have, particularly as we started refining down the you know, the programmes we were going to show, try and do something from each of the Doctors. And the big one for, I think it was the Saturday, was going to be to be the War Games mm-hmm. in its entirety, never ever been, wow. been seen before in the UK since its first transmission. And they were still saying, yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, we think we're getting some, somewhere positive with Pat. Uh, again, you know, Total disbelief because I didn't. I didn't know at the time that you know Pertwee and uh, uh, Troughton had had this discussion about opening himself up. Yeah. And um, I think we went there on the Sunday, day two, and myself and a few others who had to be there quite early on to try and get things set up, look through the running orders. Mm. Just nipped into the NFT bar to grab a, a, a cup of coffee and, and read through everything. And suddenly the terrace bar door opens and you know you could have cut the air with a, with a blade it installs uh, Troughton with, uh, with with Sheila Troughton 
and looking around thinking, you know, hello, does any, is anybody going to greet me? So I thought, well, I better go up and say something. <laughs> And probably did the best thing you can do with Patrick Trout and say, would you like to sit down and have a drink? Totally unfazed me. He said, oh, yeah, whiskey and soda would be good. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, you know, 10.30 in the morning, yeah, we, we can probably arrange this. <laughs> and uh, that's what he did, plonked himself down there. And uh, you absolutely could have uh, looked at all the looks of aghast, agape, and uh, total amazement from people arriving at the event before it kicked off at, at noon. Hmm. Suddenly, seeing Pat Troughton himself, who only had previously, his only previous public event, as far as I know, in the eighties, had been the, um, the Longleat event oh, yes. back in April. Yeah. So it was quite staggering, and he really did decide he was he was enjoying it. And um, I think the best story, and please forgive me if this story has been told more than once, decided he wanted to stick around and and, and see the, the war games because again he hadn't seen it since transmission. Hmm. So, you know, as you do with the National Film Theatre, you lag a couple of tickets, find a, one of the few spare seats in NFT1, and he went in and, and, and sat down with his wife. And the story goes that there was a, two or three fans sat in the, in the row in front of him who were you know, watching the programme on screen with sort of rapt attention. But they couldn't understand why they were seeing, hearing the same voice behind them talking about the show and the same as the same voice that was going on on the screen and one of them sort of turned around to look <laughs> and nearly sort of fractured his neck when he had, we did the perennial sort of Tex Avery double take when he suddenly realized that sat behind him was uh, was Patrick Troughton so it was uh, it was, it was just marvelous to see that and to see the reaction to him mm. and in in a way it was the sort of you know apotheosis of fandom to see the one Doctor that had never ever well, <laughs> of the ones that were still alive out of the five that were around at the time, suddenly just turning up and just being there for people and quite merrily uh, signing autographs until quite in late in the evening. So that was a, it was just amazingly wonderful to see. So the haunting of Villa Diodati by Maxine Alderton. So the TARDIS crew meets Byron and the Shelleys. It's 1816 on a dark and stormy night, and just as Mary is about to write Frankenstein, in amongst the trappings of a ghost story, we also get the appearance of the lone Cyberman. Who wants to kick us off with some thoughts about this? (laughs) That's that's the usual response. Gels and I are on satellite links. There's a bit of a pause. (laughs) Should it be me? I'm just going to say that I'm just going to say that the reason I'm back here this week isn't just because of scheduling conflicts. It's because I've enjoyed this one significantly more than most of the episodes this season and indeed last season. It seemed to me to thread a sharp relief just what was slightly lacking, or sometimes a lot lacking, in the other episodes for me by by getting it all right. It's Mm -hmm. um, I don't mean to take anything away from this. Damn it with faint praise. I think this is genuinely a proper piece of who that would have worked beautifully in any era. Mm. The more I, I've watched it twice now, the more I watch it, the cleverer I think it is. It has mm-hmm. I, it's an intriguing plot that keeps you guessing and, the, and a resolution that doesn't feel disappointing or underwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's funnier than most episodes and it's also scarier than most episodes. I mean, mm. you know, I would like it if the series could have some sort of emotional impact every week, either funny or scary, <laughs> to be honest. But I mean, to do both at the same time is quite a good trick. So yeah. it really is... Very impressive. Mm. And it just seemed to have a life and an energy and a spark to the dialogue. And when the dialogue's sparky, the characters come alive and everything starts working. So I was 
dead chuffed. I just wanted to come on the world, uh, uh, come on here and <coughs> tell the world that Maxine Alderton uh, is my new hero. <laughs> Maybe a bit too early to say Maxine Alderton for showrunner, but you know, Maxine Alderton for showrunner. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, very good. Somebody else? Yes, apparently this is what you get for having written 116 episodes of Emmerdale, says IMDb. Um, yeah, 116 episodes of Emmerdale, three episodes of the of the worst witch. Right. Is her um her her CV, and then she goes and does this. Did any of them have Fraser Hines in it? Uh, I don't think. No, apparently, 2013 <laughs> onwards. So unless, oh, oh dear. Okay. Unless Fraser's been back since. <laughs> Unless they've written him back in since I last watched Emmerdale. God knows how long ago that was. Probably when it was Emmerdale Farm. Mm. Yeah, I doubt it. But yeah, that was... um, Yeah, you get the writing right and everything else falls into place, it it seems. It really was quite a mini masterpiece. Probably the best. I've enjoyed quite a lot... Yeah, I've enjoyed quite a lot of this season while, while being willing to poke holes. I've certainly enjoyed this season much more, I think, Consistently than than the last, but it still felt like this was a significant raising of the bar compared to what we'd had anywhere else. Yeah, quite you know quite good. A very yeah a very a sort of trad Doctor Who setup in some mm. ways. You know, and you can you can certainly imagine them dropping them into this situation. But yeah, just just really brilliant. And also shout out for the direction again. Who's the director? It's the same same lady that did last week, isn't it? Emma Sullivan. Emma Sullivan, yeah, yeah, she's clearly um clearly a hot talent. It has to be said as well. It just really got everything bang on. Good. Simon, thoughts from you? Yeah, well, regular listeners will know I'm always bleating about the the inconsistency of the show. One week it's fantastic and hits a real mm-hmm. high, and the excitement mounts for the next week, and then it absolutely nosedives. Mm-hmm. And also in the previous series, I used to complain about the lack of scares and the lack of villains. And really, with this series, we've been spot for excellent villains. We had Zelin in Can You Hear Me? And this week, we had the lone Cyberman, who I thought was excellent. Mm -hmm. And having had a great episode last week, I was a bit nervous about this week. But we had a fantastic, decent period drama, a lovely haunted house setting, and then a fantastic return albeit for a lone Cyberman and um, some of the, the dialogue and the facing off between the Doctor Jodie Whittaker and the lone Cyberman that, that was really terrific really really enjoyable Yaz I feel is let down by the script I think she's still very underused I think there's bags of potential there that we haven't seen yet whereas Ryan just tends to let down the script still unfortunately <laughs> so I hope I desperately hope there's going to be a refresh of the crew mm when the series ends or, or even sooner preferably um, Graham was very amusing wandering around the haunted house but managing to find a nice plate mm-hmm. of food that was that was very good um, the supporting cast in this episode were really good and sustained the drama all the way through um, some interesting background as well I think Byron is um, Ada Lovelace's father who we saw earlier so there was a nice bit of continuity there yeah. as well I mean it's good enough to get Paul back in the game here again <laughs> and um, I thought I thought it was excellent it's fantastic it raised the bar so we've had two consecutive good episodes so I hope I hope that's mm. not going to ruin it for the season finale yes yeah I mean there, there is always that problem where 
you know, for every Earthshock, there's a, a time flight, isn't there? And for <laughs> every Caves of Androzani, there's a twin dilemma. But, uh, you know, I mean, f- for me also, I mean, to four out of four of us, um, I, I thought the episode hardly put a foot wrong. I thought the dialogue was particularly standout. I mean, it was it was um, going back to uh, the Stephen Moffat era with the, the witty one-liners and it brought everything uh, back to life, sparkled. Good character development as well. Uh, but I mean, m- most importantly, a cracking story—a uh, um, story that kept me guessing and, and and kept interest all the way through. So, as far as I'm concerned, I hope they can bottle what they've done here and re- reproduce it time after time. Uh, and and I'd say it's definitely the pick of the season. I mean, I I, I really enjoyed the Judoon one as well, but this this one uh, uh, pipped that. So I'm talking this evening with a true Renaissance man. Toby Haydoke is a stand-up comedian, actor, writer, compare, podcaster, commentary and convention panel moderator, all-round Doctor Who treasure and what we'll concentrate on here, frontman for Doctor Who DVD and Blu-ray extra films. I watched for the first time a couple of days ago your film Living with Levine. Yes. Which is quite an extraordinary film. It's very entertaining, but it is also a little bit scary, and and I, I I wonder what the experience of that was for you. It was it was interesting. I I think we learnt a lot on that one because I th- I think we wanted to have fun, and we knew that John would be fun. Yeah. We certainly weren't setting out to make a fool of him. No. And in fact, John left a message for me on my phone today. So we're friends. There's no you know. So there's no no suggestion that uh, sure. he was a stooge no no but we did go but that was as that was a suggestion that, that that has been made a couple of times it was a very i thought at a time when all doctor who documentaries on dvds were sort of people not remembering something and a talking, <laughs> to, uh, you know in a series of talking heads yeah. i thought we'd really pushed the boat out and done something different and we got a really ungenerous and rather snarky review oh. in doctor who magazine of all places that sort of said well it seemed like they were just uh, taking they were there to take the mickey out of him and then it turned out that they liked him and we were like well yeah so we weren't actually there to take the mickey out of him we you've given us a bad review for doing what you thought we were doing but we actually weren't but anyway i i I simply say that because we were nonetheless aware that john john at conventions and john on his dvd commentaries is a law unto himself Mm -hmm. and at that stage he only did dvd commentaries on his own right and so how do you change that dynamic when you have him with somebody? Well, you can't do that when you're doing a, a, a straight-up talking heads kind of thing. Mm. And I'd love to say it was my idea and it was Chris's idea, but actually I was on a train from <laughs> Bath. I think I'd been doing a gig somewhere, and a packet of Haribo landed on my my train table. Mm. I'd set up to play, do stuff on my laptop because if I have a long train journey I like to do some work and sort yeah. of set myself in for the duration and uh, this packet of Haribo landed and this guy went uh, they don't have any jelly babies in the buffet car I just want to say like the you know like the DVD stuff that you do and I was like oh that's very nice a Doctor Who fan make himself known and he said you know anyway I don't want to bother you on the journey I said no it's fine I'm just, you know, it's not lovely to have you know to say hello mm-hmm. and he said why why do because John Levine is this this sort of character and because he only does the solo commentaries and stuff why not try and do a sort of Louis Theroux type of weekend with him because uh-huh. he's that bigger character 
but also with John, and he and this is nothing I wouldn't say to him, and nothing that he hasn't said to me. A lot of that front and performance does hide somebody who has, you know, depth and yeah. and contradictions and all those sorts of things that I don't think are necessarily too well hidden, but I don't think they're particularly well explored. Mm. And and sometimes I think he gives the impression that he doesn't mean to give, and and, and some and I, again a, a third party could sort of pull that out in a way that if John was left to his own devices he might not mm. but but that's this guy didn't David Chandler he's called uh, he didn't go into that much detail he just went why don't you do a, a Louis Theroux weird weekend with John Levine and I rather sort of did a sort of slightly showy off thing and I, I sort of texted did I text Dan Hall no I think I texted no I texted Chris Chapman uh-huh. and said why don't we do a weekend with John Levine and I and I showed this guy on the train that I said, "Look, I've sent a text. You know, I've I've got the ear of the DVD people." And I was just being a bit of a twit, really. <laughs> um, but before the journey was over, I'd got a message back from Chris going, "I've pitched it to Dan, and he thinks it's a great idea." <laughs> so I was able to sort of say to David, "Look, this doesn't normally happen this quickly, but this this might be happening." And yeah. it was originally intended because they were bringing out the moon base on DVD. Oh, yes. and I think they were, yeah. and Chris was doing the making of the moon base. And that was John's first uncredited appearance yeah. in Doctor Who, was in the film sequences as a Cyberman. Mm. So it was going to be for that, which is why you'll hear in the opening narration, I actually do a bit where I go, John's first appearance was in the moon base. As, <laughs> and the emphasis on the moon base is if to say, this DVD that you're watching. Right, and then, yeah. then they decided to do the special editions. And I think the clause of Axos was a bit light, and they went, oh, let's bung it on that instead. And of course, John John does a bit more in the Clause of Axos. So it went on on that instead. Mm. And and in terms of the making of it, I think I would do it. I think Chris and I would both do it slightly differently now. I think I maybe tried to to force it a little bit. And actually, I I, I think I think I should have taken a, a, a bit of a step back. I think I was too keen to to sort of. To, to, to get involved in a way and, and, and make it and sort of jolly it along. And I think a, a slightly softly, softly approach might have been better. And we had a couple of sequences that we filmed where uh, I tried to get to the root of stuff and I and I don't think I did a particularly good job and they didn't really, really make it in. I mean, it's still a, a, an interesting and fun film and we definitely, mm. you know, had the honourable intentions. But I think I was, try- I was perhaps being a bit too arch. I was trying to make it a... I was trying to force its eccentricity, if you like, rather than yeah. just let it be. And you know, there's nothing worse. Forced eccentricity is not eccentricity. It's uh, it's you know, it's pretentiousness. But but that that was my inexperience, I think, speaking out. But I still, nonetheless, think uh, as it stood at the time and and the sort of DVD extras that were being made at the time, which were all pretty much of a type. Yes. You know, we we went to try and do something different and to try and capture a guy who. You know his his DVD commentaries had certainly generated comment and I mm-hmm. and, and had gone unchecked and I think to have to have John there with somebody being able to go well actually John that's not quite true is it or oh come on John and pulling him back slightly yeah. or, and pushing him in different directions I, I think was a legitimate way of trying to get to grips with a guy who if nothing else is totally different from his Doctor Who character. Yes, you know Sergeant Benton is, you know, this sort of down-to-earth, stoical, slightly put-upon, loyal Labrador type, whereas John is prone to sort of hyperbole and, uh, and and sort of extremes of emotion, where he'll be hugely sentimental one minute and then unnecessarily furious the next. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was, you know, that was worth having a, a look at. And John likes it, and me and I like it, and John, but. Uh, uh, 
you know, he, I think he knows that uh, he can sometimes he can sometimes get carried away with himself. Hmm. I mean, I, I think you know it's quite clear that once or twice you you get a little peek through through his carapace, and you do show towards the end that he is self-aware as, as well. It, you know, he he's, he's not unaware of the fact that that he gives out strange kind of vibes on occasions. Yeah, and I think he was savvier to the type of documentary it was than I perhaps got into it giving him credit for. Mm-hmm. He he was a much more sort of knowing participant mm. than perhaps, say, a lot of Louis Theroux's um, subjects yeah. are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, John is an actor and he's he's been in the profession long enough to know when to give the impression that he wants to give. So it wasn't... I th- You know, I think those things work best when the subject is slightly unaware of what this idiot savant is is drawing out of them in the case of Louis Theroux. Whereas with, with me and John, it was a bit more sort of banterish and, and certainly a bit more, you know, certainly on his part with a, with a bit more savviness and knowledge of the, of the format than mm. perhaps the Louis Theroux type thing. And actually as, you know, as we stated with the, the, the Matthew Waterhouse one, which I know you want to come to later, but, but that was much more, get Louis through out of your head, Toby, and do what, you know, my friend said to me years and years ago, which is the best advice I'd ever had as a stand-up, which is just be yourself and do yeah. what you do. And and I think, you know, that takes sometimes takes you a long time to discover that the, the voice you speak in best is, is your own. Today I'm talking with podcaster extraordinaire and Lego fanatic Stephen Chapansky. So, uh, I mean, I guess inevitably we can't have this discussion without having a uh, a quick pot at the Omni rumour and, and the circumstances around that. And I, and I guess as much as anything, perhaps the madness that overtook fandom for many, well, several years anyway. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, certainly as in my own case, I think, you know, I became somewhat obsessional for a number of years in terms of... Oh, me too. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> in terms of try, you know, and 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 going into a lot of minutiae that that. I mean, as, so as we said at the start, I mean, I've I've been aware of, of missing episodes for what thirty odd years at that time, and I and I had, I'd always had this nagging thought at the back of my mind: Have they really looked? Have they really looked? Have they, have, have they gone and looked? I mean, not not of course enough that I mm. actually got off my own bottom and went and had a look myself. But you know, have they gone and looked? You know, right. are, 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 are we sure? So, so the thought that somebody else could have gone and looked, I mean, it it, it kind of had the ring of plausibility about it that that um, that things are still out there, and of course that that then that should be followed up shortly after by some actual um, episodes being returned, and 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 having indeed sat on the shelf for for many years. Yeah, I mean, all the ingredients, I guess, were were there. The the internet age, yeah, for 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 a fantastic um, explosion, and and. Um, and perhaps a foretaste of of our current times, so, you know, real polarizing of opinion among the fan community that between those people who said no, no, that you know he can't possibly have found anything, and those people who are oh, he must have found everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't know what your experience was. Well, I the my first experience with I think uh, what became the Omni rumor was, was at Chicago Tarts in 2012 November of 2012, uh-huh. and it was it was flying. Ever the the discussion was just like all over and that was uh the christmas it was the november leading up to the um the snowmen the christmas special that year yeah 
And I remember someone telling me there, like, oh, uh, no, it's real. They found, like, Web of Fear because they're referencing it in the upcoming Christmas special. At the last scene, somebody told me, uh, they said, uh, he's going to say, oh, I remember something about uh, the Yeti in the underground. Oh, yeah. Mm. And I thought, okay, whatever. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll park that. And when the Christmas mm. special comes out, uh, I'll see if they're right. And sure enough, there's a scene. You could tell that Stephen Moffat has written that Christmas special around the fact that the Web of Fear has been found because yeah. there's so many references into that. And when he looks at that little lunchbox, uh, you know, so obviously he was planning on it coming out as well. I Mark Ayers was at that convention that weekend and I... I interviewed him for various, you know, just audio stuff as, yes. because there's so many things you can talk to Mark Ayers about. Yeah. And just, I thought at the end, at the end of this interview, I'll just throw a question about missing episodes. I'm sure I'll just shoot it down and stuff. And when I asked him, like, what do you think, you know, these crazy rumors, aren't they crazy and silly? And I, I expect him to just, oh yeah, just ludicrous and stuff. But then he sort of like pause and says, hmm, yes, it's most, and I just thought, he didn't shoot that down at all. Hmm. And that just flared my uh, curiosity. And then, of course, yes. when I saw the snowman, I thought, oh, this is actually happening, isn't it? Something hmm. is really up here. And then uh, me and another person connected, I want to say May 8th, 2013, is when I when I was first, like, I'd, you know, when we all sort of, dis- I discovered the 90 episode thing. Yeah. And the, you know, the the fascinating thing is that that rumor was everywhere. Like it wasn't just amongst like low level fans and stuff, you know, like Mark Gatiss was sort of like excited about it. Like other like notable fans seemed to be thinking like, this is actually a thing that's happening. Hmm. And I, you know, and we were all doing the digging and stuff. Like I was, uh, those are heady days, heady, innocent days in a way. Like I, I still get emails for com, which is that ship to sea based (laughs) shipping company, which, uh, of course we all found like, you know, that someone called P Morris from Liverpool had shipped three tons of film cans from, uh, uh, somewhere in Africa to, to Liverpool. And so I created a C rates account just to get updates and stuff on things. And so I still get the occasional email. I could, (laughs) I could unsubscribe from that, but I don't. I no. don't as a memory to those heady days when I was like tracking down film can shipments to to uh from Phil Morris. Um and and you know, I I was driving I think I think I knew that that something was happening at this point because this the art Radio Free Scarrow gets you connections over the years, and so I sort yes. of had an inkling that something was going down, but yeah. I didn't know when it was. And I was driving around in the mountains in, in Alberta here on the weekend of uh uh the basically five or six days before the the actual announcement happened on October yep. 9th. And it was just such a surreal experience. My friend was in the car and I said, could you drive for a bit? I need to like get, be on top of this in there. And all of a sudden, like, yeah, it's actually happening, but it's only web and enemy or something. I think that's mm. when I sort of like, so it, it got pared down from 90 to nine. Yeah. Uh, it was probably originally 12, let's face it. I think, you know, I, I do believe Phil Morris when he says that he had web part three, but someone walked off with it. What's curious is that, uh, you know, the actual timeline of things, I think he probably discovered that in 2011, perhaps Mm -hmm. even earlier, and it only came out in 2013 that he had it. So, like, how long ago did he find those episodes? What else did he find? Why were there three tons of film cans? What else is in there? You know, he keeps Mm -hmm. sort of, like, leading everyone on, but then you realize, like, that's seven years ago now, is is 2013 when those episodes came out. So how long can you lead people on 
thinking that you have more Doctor Who and stuff. So really, the Omni rumor still is kind of like out there a little bit. But uh, I figured yeah. during these times, like there's nothing better to do than say, okay, here are the missing episodes. <laughs> Please enjoy them. Give you something something to to look forward yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I very briefly met Phil Morris just over a year ago. So he he went to the missing believed wiped thing in in uh, in London. Mm-hmm. So he came out with that with that you know, phrase, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to light the blue touch paper. That said, a frisson among the the crowd, which it was interestingly stuffed with quite a lot of who luminaries. I mean, it wasn't just bog standard fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, and afterwards, he was he was um, he was talking to people, and um, my friend Paul Morris, no relation, who's uh, a big Finnish author, he, he he sort of digged me in the ribs, and he said, you know, go up and have a chat with him. Go on, you, you can do that. <laughs> right. So so I th- well, so I thought, well, okay, well, we, we we can do that. And um, so he's an interesting character. I mean, I I, th- I think you're a, you're a, a similar height to me, about sort of six feet five or so. I, I, Phil Morris isn't quite that tall, but he's he's not far off. He's certainly over six feet tall. He's so he's he's quite an imposing presence, quite broad, and he's got you know quite a, quite piercing eyes. Um, I mean, he was very friendly, very mm-hmm. and, and and he spent a long time talking to all of the people who wanted to talk to him. But uh, yeah, I thought actually I can sort of see that this is a this is a charismatic kind of guy who, who could easily have talked people, uh, uh, you know, in foreign countries into handing over stuff in 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 return for something. So yeah, there, there, there was definitely something about him. But yeah, um, we, you know, we, we we kind of felt that 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 blue touch paper thing was maybe the 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 the, the start of something else, but it hasn't proven to be. So yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I'm speaking with Chris Chapman, who's a producer and director of television programmes, as well as the author of a number of Big Finish audios. But the main thing I want to discuss with him today is his work as producer and director of many of the new extra features on the Doctor Who The Collection Blu-ray sets. So another example of that is where you've got Katie Manning and Stuart Bevan returning to Derry in, in your Keeping Up With The Joneses film. Which is, yeah. a, 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 I mean, I guess we always knew that they had a, a special kind of relationship together, but that that comes to the fore. But also, I suppose, what what might be a surprise is just how much it seems to have meant to the people of the of the, of the town. You know that 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 event forty odd years ago, still very very uppermost in some of their memories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember on on the DVD of Green Death, I made a making of, right. and I thought to myself, oh, I like to go on location. And then I looked at the locations and thought, oh, all the locations have been, you know, the the uh, the the kind of factory's been bulldozed, and the pit isn't there anymore, and everything else is, you know, the nut hutch is there still, but mm-hmm. most of the rest of it's just it's just kind of country roads. So I won't go on location. I'll just film this all in the studio. And I always felt a bit bad about that. And so when we came to do season ten on Blu-ray, uh, I thought again about the Green Death and. and and looked into it a bit more and thought actually maybe the fact that the pit has closed down so there's an absence there maybe that's in, an interesting absence maybe that says mm. something about the time in which it was filmed and what's happened since and I'm I'm half Welsh you know I've got a lot of a lot of mining in in my family my uh, great grandfather was a mining supervisor and 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 so I feel very connected to the valleys and I know mm-hmm. that I knew that Katie who's half Welsh and Stuart who's full Welsh you know that they both really had that connection and we'd filmed with them before the two of them together and you know they were boyfriend and girlfriend in the 70s they have an, an amazing connection they're very funny yeah. together they're very 
easy together. Hmm. And uh, so I thought maybe we can do a bit of a road trip back to Derry. And uh, and actually, it turned out to be a lot more than I expected it to be. I think the, the people of the town really saw Doctor Who as kind of the last hurrah for that hmm. version of their of their community. You know, uh, that it was right at the end of the life of that pit, just yeah. before the closure. So it was a moment when everybody was united in pride and excitement about mm. what's happening at the pit. And I think there's a sadness that comes from that in the absence mm. of of that side of the community. And luckily, so a lot of those people uh, were still living in Derry, you know, or, or living in the nearby community, and they were really welcoming and generous with us. And one of my happiest moments was we, after the film finished, I took it back to the pub in Derry that we filmed in and got everybody involved to come down and we we laid on drinks and catering and, and we had a big premiere at the pub and all right. watched it together. Yeah. And it was lovely, you know, and it was and again you want to say thank you where you where you can, but yeah. I think people were genuinely, you know, a bit bemused, I'm I'm sure, as to why you know, a, a Doctor Who film crew had turned up, you know, but I think very mm. touched, you know, that we wanted to to hear their story. And uh, no, I'm really happy with the film. It was very hard to make because it was very windy and rainy the whole time. Like, yes. I think one, of, I think probably the hardest one I've made in that sense. Mm. But I know that Katie and Stuart had a great time, and uh, I know the the people from from Derry did too. So it was it was a good one, definitely. And yes. we enjoyed filming with Bessie. Bessie uh, Dean Rose has a beautiful replica of Bessie, mm. uh, who which I was very demanding of and wanted it to do. To do lots of driving and retakes, and uh, and the engine didn't last very long. So I was very uh, appreciative to, to Dean for letting us put his pride and joy through that. But uh, I, I think I think it's just lovely to see Katie and Stuart driving around and in that sprite, sprightly yellow roadster, just yes. like the old days. Yeah, no, I, I think that that was a that was a lovely touch, and and I think the fact that they were able to go back to the nut touch that was also a, a, a nice touch too. Yeah. Yeah, well, the nut hatch hasn't ch- hasn't chased at all. You know, I think that's a lovely thing about farms and those kind of buildings that, yeah. that there's just not often not a need to particularly modernise them on the outside. Uh, mm. So the nut hatch is is easily the most recognisable, I think, of those locations mm. that are still there. Definitely, not so much the pit, not much of the pit to see now, but no, the nut hatch definitely no. No, I mean, you could weep. I, I was brought up in, in Yorkshire, and I remember in the early to mid-70s, they, um, the coal board came to school, and they said, Selby coal field, coal for 400 yeah. years, and 20 years later they shut it down. So it was, um, you know, and I mean, that's 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 the story right across Britain. I, I, it's not unique to that, but it, it is... No, but, it, but I, it's I mean, huge... I mean, nobody loved working down the mines. It was hard work and it was and it was horrible but the impact on those communities and the pride that it took away from people that's that's the thing to weep about i think i think the real cruelty of the pits closing anywhere and it's a very universal feeling but the real cruelty is the lack of thought for what those people would do next you know if if thatcher had said we're closing the pits but i've got this big new idea for how we're going to save mm. these lives essentially and save these communities then i'd have a bit more sympathy because coal, coal had to go at some point. But I yeah. think it's it's the, it's it's a lack of mercy mm. and sympathy in that situation that that has allowed a lot of those towns, a lot of those towns in South Wales, to kind of wither on the vine, you know, after after the closure of a, of a pit. And I think that's a huge tragedy, unfortunately. Sure. It's Rich Tipple, known to his legion of fans as Sir Farfrom. Hello, Rich, and welcome to Something Who. 
Hey, thanks very much. I'm not sure about a legion of fans, but that sounds that sounds wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so Richard's here to talk about colourising black and white stories of Doctor Who, and in particular the episode Day of Armageddon that, that you've recently colourised and, and which launched at uh, the Gallifrey Convention in America. And after working on it for so long, I mean, do you know every line of dialogue now? <laughs> yeah, I reckon I could probably <laughs> repeat it back to you verbatim. Yeah, it... it when I started out doing this, yeah, the reason I picked this episode is because I had to ask myself the question, why Why do you even want to colourise Doctor Who anyway? You know, there's a lot of people who just think it should remain in black and white, and I think actually that's a completely valid opinion. Hmm. But there's a huge amount of people, and they, you know, it needs to be respected, because it's a growing number of people who won't watch black and white stuff. They're just not used to it. They've, they've not grown up in the same sort of maybe generations and watched the same stuff we have. They have an intrinsic block as soon as something appears that's in black and white they don't want to watch it and i'm i'm you know i'm in my early 30s but i love 60s doctor who mm-hmm. probably makes me a bit of an outlier so when i see kind of people in my peer group and stuff and i talk you know about kind of this that or the other they're just not that just glaze over as soon as they see that it's in black and white they have no interest in it whatsoever so i wanted to create something that sort of reintroduced it to them because for me, 60s Doctor Who is the greatest era the show ever achieves. I mean, there's Doctor Who's just brilliant, full stop, but that Hartnell, Troughton, 63 to 69, is almost unparalleled in its vision and its its brilliance. And I think to find, you know, to find people not watching that simply because it was in black, black and white was a little bit of a, a travesty. So uh, I wanted to pick an episode that was incredibly exciting and had loads of action and a huge amount of pace mm. to it. Because, without being rude, if I had colourised an episode of um, The Web Planet yeah, or episode three of The Sensorites, I don't know whether it would have had the same reaction. Mm. But as soon as you see Daleks with flamethrowers burning down a jungle and things exploding, you know, it's instantly more exciting. Um, so from that point of view, I wanted, you know, it was something that not only was it going to keep my interest over the six years I was working on it, but also potentially it would be something pacing wise that would be familiar to just a new series audience yeah yeah uh, i think that makes a lot of sense and 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 i think also so so i think it works on that level and i think perhaps also for um for fans who are more traditional it being standalone or or being one of a series of of um, orphaned episodes from the daleks master plan then again there's you know there's some sense to it because you don't have to do a whole story. Oh, well, I mean, there's. Yeah, I'm sure you'd love to have the opportunity, but but you know, at, at this rate, as far as we can tell, you're not going to get the opportunity. So so it, so it's a, it, it's a nice one-off to be able to have a look at. Yeah, I mean that that is quite a nice thing, you know. Like if I think I've done episode one of you know or any kind of existing, fully existing story, people will be like, great, and I do the rest, which would. <laughs> probably irk me slightly yeah you know um but doing this allows me just to add a little bit of color and life you know and there are also doctor who fans out there that haven't watched this episode before i know that might sound incredible to you and i but mm. if it hasn't had a standalone dvd release there's loads of people who don't own lost in time mm. you know there's a when we had our premiere over in in los angeles there were people watching that episode for the very first time 
and their very first experience of it of it was in colour. <laughs> that's that's kind of mind blowing, isn't it? But yeah. that's you know that that's that's cool. I think you know that's like that's that's just quite interesting. Um, and in terms of what you're saying about you know its its role um, within the kind of wider story, it, it I guess it's just it gives us twenty five percent of of the visuals. You know, it gives us that sort of that glimpse into into what not only what what did master plan look like you know what did tv of the time look like you know mm. what did what was doctor who like at the time you know it, it, it sort of answers loads of loads of questions for me you know when you watch a loose cannon recon yeah and there's that excitement when a steel sort of bursts into life yes and starts moving and you get five seconds of of clip or something yeah there's something about that that just makes it feel so real and immediate and fresh Mm. and i guess like i wanted that feeling again watching an episode i know backwards you know i wanted to see like well does this feel different in color and it absolutely does it absolutely changes the feel of it you know it's some people will hate it some people will love it i hope you know both versions are kind of always you know i don't want there to ever be a sort of it's i hope you know we get to a point where bbc only colorize everything and they only release color versions i think that would be awful but i just think it's wonderful to have a bit of choice out there and for people to maybe think oh i wonder what it was like this and to be able to do that you know the technology is there now to do this mm. sort of thing so i think it's just it's, it's interesting from just a, a, a purely historical point of view what did these things look like what did they feel like you know what was the audience expecting at the time and then just breathing a little bit of kind of life into it Kieran Hyman's already appeared once on this podcast for our popular Down Under episode, which is still available from all good podcast apps and a few bad ones. Hello, Kieran. Hello. How's it going? Yeah, yeah, great, thanks. I'm glad we are able to speak to you. Yep, no, it's good to be back. I wanted to talk to you about the, the reception that you got when you presented the film at uh, the Gallifrey Convention. I mean, first off, I guess you were sitting in, on stage in front of hundreds of people. So, um, yeah, what was that experience? About, about like? a thousand people, I think, was estimated right. at the end. Yeah. Oh, you know, it was incredible, really. You know, being able to finally sort of show off the, what you've been working on for mm. so long in, in front of a, a group of people who don't have to be there. They're, they're a group of people who you know are, are predisposed to enjoying yeah. what you're showing them because yeah. they, they've come to that particular panel. So, yeah, it was a very, very warm appreciation. And it was just great, even divorced from the fact that it was in colour, mm. watching the episode in a group of people like that mm. and you know, hearing all the, the cheers and laughs at certain points, points I wouldn't have even imagined. You know, like... Um, uh, when you see one of the the delegates, I think Salation, doing his funny walk as he walks down the the ramp in the the Dalek City, mm-hmm. everyone gives that a laugh. That was quite good. Oh yes. So I, I never never really thought about it, but it is quite funny. Yeah. And and the cheers when uh, Hartnell grabs the Tranium Core at the end, because that is of course you know, it's a, it's an important part of the whole story is the the moment he steals the crane the Tranium Core. Yes. And everyone, yeah, cheers, and then immediately laughs 
as the shot pans over to Zephon running down the road <laughs> yeah. with his hands tied. Yeah, naked so Zephon. that's quite good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. So Rich was saying there's lots of reaction online. I mean, I, I, I guess as well as in the hall, there must have been um, some discussion afterwards too. Yeah, yeah, we got a lot of people, yeah, just... Because uh, I was sat just, uh, you know, to the side of, of the room where sort of the technicians are, you know, with all the computers. And I was just watching w- watching the episode and watching people's reaction. And then, you know, w- walked into the crowd as it finished mm. over to my friends and people just giving their compliments. I mean, people were very kind about it. And everyone... I was asking people, you know, what their favourite parts were. And I think... Uh, with with everyone who I asked I got about every part of the episode was mentioned <laughs> at least once as, yeah. as somebody's favourite bit which is you know brilliant it's yes. really you know, you know makes you proud of your work that yeah. people have picked out you know all of it as, as being something to talk about yeah and I guess it means that your three other colleagues can all feel happy that the bits that they did uh, you know have all been appreciated by someone mm yeah, yeah, and, um, you know, someone would mention, oh, I like that, that shot in the jungle, and I said, oh, yes, I did that. And then they'd say, <laughs> you know, I like like the shot in the Dalek City, and I said, well, I'll pass that on to Richard, who did that bit, and uh, you know, Justin and Scott, who did the others. Yeah. And the spa sequences people talked about. Hmm. Yeah. And all that's left to say is a very merry Something Who Christmas to all of you at home. <laughs>